0: Okay, yeah. So this evening session, we're looking at Luke chapter 19. We're looking at the story of Zacchaeus. And yeah, I mean, a fair few of you might have already heard the story of Zacchaeus from when you were young. But before we get into that, we're going to get into this week's discussion question. The question is, what is the least popular job in society? What kind of job is, yeah, is the least popular amongst all the jobs in society?
1: Right. I don't know what
0: they're called. But you know the people who, like, look after the dead people when they die and they, like, clean their body, that, because I would not want to do that, so.
1: I think a Man United player, because no one really likes them.
0: Whoa,
2: whoa, 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 whoa.
1: You started some beef there. I can wholeheartedly agree with
2: you on that one. Can't be as bad as a Liverpool player, though. Just be glad Ramon's not here. Excuse me.
1: I'm gonna say a bin man to get us back on topic. Thank you. Maybe like a cleaner, although I find cleaning really satisfying, so I wouldn't find it bad. But I think other people do.
2: The guy that uh, goes and does the parking tickets, parking man.
1: I also don't know what they're
0: called, but the people that work for the company that deal with like all the complaints on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. All, all great. Um, all great ideas. Any more thoughts? Any more ideas on that question?
1: I'm going to go and say the Prime Minister. Absolutely. Yeah. To bounce off that one, I'd say a politician in general. Um,
2: Maybe like bailiffs, like who collect debts and stuff.
0: Absolutely. Why why are those jobs not so popular, I guess? Yeah. What do you guys think?
1: With the politician one, I think, and like the um, parking guy, I think public opinion, like if it's based on public opinion, then they're not very popular. And so you probably wouldn't want that job. Um, I'd probably say repetitive if it's like getting bins and you think, here we go again, you know? For the Prime Minister, well, he keeps on putting this in lockdown, which is necessary, I guess, but it's a bit annoying, so, you know.
2: Some jobs, cleaners, binmen, stuff like that. It's, it's unclean, it's dirty work. People don't like to do that. I mean, I, I like to keep my hands nice and clean.
1: I guess following on for, like, what, what you've been saying, is smaller, it depends on what kind of domain it covers. I mean, it's usually things that... Um, people aren't entirely happy with doing, or are entirely, or have a, have a bad, like a bad um opinion, like a typical stero- stereotype with this particular thing, which makes people sort of resent resent them in in a way.
0: I'd say that with the morgue people, because like, I I don't want to be haunted by like all the
1: ghosts if like you messed their outfit up or something, because that would be a real problem. <laughs> I mean like the prime minister is trying to get us through a pandemic, but
2: everything he says is deemed as wrong so that's
1: pretty tough i reckon it's more being in the public eye and being in the public view because just as i think someone just said it's just you're constantly being judged on the choices you're making it's those kind of jobs that people don't want to do because they're in the public eye and they're constantly being judged on those jobs
0: yeah no absolutely that was some yeah, some really great points and you might be thinking okay what's the kind of purpose of that why do we just spend like 10 minutes talking about career choices well Looking at today's passage at Zacchaeus, it's important to try and get into the mindset of how people would have viewed Zacchaeus at this time. So, before we get into the passage, I'm just going to give a kind of brief historical context overview of tax collectors in the first century. You know, we've spoken about all these jobs, we've spoken about how, you know, maybe like we wouldn't like to do them personally or they receive a lot of criticism, a lot of hate from other people for doing their job. Well, If you think of quotes like the worst one out of that list and multiply it by a huge quantity, then you kind of get close to how people would have felt about tax collectors back 2000 years ago. You see, tax collectors, they were seen by everyone in society, especially the Jews. They were seen by the Jews as like the worst, the worst people in all of society and even worse when you look at the chief tax collectors who were jews taken by the romans and selected to kind of collect the taxes of that region so not only do you have this idea that obviously the jews didn't like the romans anyway because they were under roman occupation they didn't really have too many nice feelings towards them but then on top of this you have one of your own brethren in allegiance to the romans and you know because of that we can see that zacchaeus was a jew he was also a tax collector So he would have been seen as a corroborator with the Romans. And it's also important to understand how tax collectors went about their job. If you think of taxes today, you know, you pay a proportion of your salary to the government each year, um, and that's a set percentage that's determined by how much you earn. You see, back in first century, how much you would be taxed really depended on how much the tax collector wanted to earn. Because yes, they did have a set threshold, which they had to tax the people, but their salary came out of that tax. Their salary came out of the excess that they were charged people. No one really likes paying taxes, especially these first century Jews who, to put it into context, Roman taxes equated to about 50 to 80% of their earnings. That's a lot of money when you add on top of that the additional maybe 10, 15, 20% that the that the tax collectors themselves are going to be charging this idea that they were absolutely hated by Jewish nationalists. And you see, kind of looking at some of the taxes that they had to pay for, this chief tax collector would be set up in the central square, in the kind of business district, if you will, of each town or each city. They would have been in the public eye. They would have been seen by all. Everyone would have known them and everyone would have absolutely resented them because there was this kind of double obligation. Jews were paying taxes to the temple, which were quite small, just a tithe, about 10 percent, and then a small temple tax. But then on top of that, you had this massive 50 to 80 percent going straight to the Romans. And just some examples of some of the taxes people were taxed on. If they worked the lands, they were taxed on the ground that they worked. They were taxed just for living in a city, just for making a part of the population. They were taxed on transporting goods such as animals and food. They were taxed on inheritance. They were taxed on sales. They were taxed on business licenses. The Romans taxed pretty much everything. And when people don't like something, they often want to pin it on one person. You know, the kind of don't get me wrong, the international situation that we're finding ourselves in is very challenging. And it's very easy to think, okay, who can we pin this on um, as kind of one person? And it's think, oh, it's quite easy to look to our prime minister, although he's just taking the actions that anyone would have to take in that situation. You'd imagine it would be almost the same thing for tax collectors in these towns. People would pin all their resentment towards the Romans on this one person in their town who was in charge of collecting all the taxes. And you see, that's what makes the story of Zacchaeus so amazing. Because despite everything that he had done despite the fact that he had extorted lied and stolen from people despite the fact that he was utterly despised by all of society it didn't disqualify him from Jesus's love and it definitely didn't disqualify him from salvation and that's what Josh is going to unpack for us now in the main part of the session so I'm going to hand straight over to him
2: yes um before I get started is there anybody that would like to read the passage yeah, go on Elliot. Um, Luke 19,
1: 1 to 10. Zacchaeus and the tax collector. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Not being a short man, he could not because of the crowd, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately i must stay at your house today so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly all the people saw this and began to mutter he has gone to be the guest of a sinner jesus stood up and said to the lord look lords here and now i give half of my possessions to the poor if i have cheated anybody out of anything i will pay him back four times the amount jesus said to him today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of abraham for the son of man came to seek to save what he was what was lost.
2: Yes, that's great. Thank you, Elliot. Most of us will have known the story of Zacchaeus by now, like the little children's song that goes with it. And quite a lot of what surrounds it biblically, linking to God's love and how it's not regarded for just a small group of people, but for everyone. In fact, I remember at spring harvest in 2018, one of the best years there's been, there was a QA with Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. And there were questions about um, love and how we should love others and how we should treat the LGBTQ plus community. And he went straight to John 3.16 and said, for God so loved the world. There's no ands, ifs, uh, or buts in there. It's, there's no leaving out a certain group of people. It's not saying only if they're, they're this type of way. But he says love all. And God meets us where we are. No matter what we like, no matter where we're from, God loves us in that moment. So this story is also a very nice little way to see how it's played out in billions of lives over the last 2000 years. See, it's an amazing story of Jesus meeting somebody, showing them love and then recognising it. And that's quite often what we see when we hear the stories of people who have gone into prisons and preached the gospel for people to repent from murders or whatever they've done to find the love of God. In this first verse, I want to set out the context. I want to say that this is Jericho. This is the same Jericho that we see all the way back at the start of the New Testament, which Joshua walks around once every day for six days and then seventh on the seventh. This is is probably still a fairly large city. Rebuilding out of the rubble, there was probably three thousand four thousand people that lived there so this is arguably the chief tax collector the most hated man in the city arguably Jesus our four thousand people never met Zacchaeus never been somewhere where he knows he'll be is walking through the street and picks him out of the crowd it's a needle in a haystack story you know exactly where he was he met Zacchaeus where he was, literally and spiritually. And in that moment, he could have chosen anyone. He could have gone anywhere. He could have been, he could have gone to the richest people in the city and said, Can I have dinner with you? And they would have probably said yes, because Jesus was like celebrity status at this point. But he chose Zacchaeus, because he loved Zacchaeus, just like he loves everybody. He chose to go with the man who people saw as the most hated person. Jesus still loved him. He doesn't pick us for our strengths. Our weaknesses don't disqualify us from God's work, but instead qualify us for his grace. See, no matter how many weaknesses we have, no matter how much we feel that we aren't worthy of God's love, he still calls us. If we look at the disciples, John and James were called the sons of thunder. He wasn't a disciple, but Paul, who was previously Saul, was a mass murderer of Christians. God doesn't call the equipped, but instead he equips the called. God doesn't go out and say, you know what? This person could be the strongest person ever. I'm going to call him. Moses had to go and speak to the Pharaoh. Moses continually asked, I think three or four times, for God to send somebody else because he was afraid of public speaking. God doesn't pick us according to what we are physically on earth good at but what his plans are for us. And he has great plans for everyone. And that's what we talk about so much, about how God's plan is so important in everybody's lives, not just for Christians, the people on OBY, but for all 7.6 billion people that walk the planet. God has loved them. And God has a plan for their lives. See, we live, breathe, work, whatever you want to call it. We all live in the lives of life-changing, in loving others, and revealing God's love to them through that. See, nothing can qualify us more for God's plan than anybody else that we look at. We're all still living the Great Commission that Jesus talks about. We're all still fishing for men, going out and sharing God's love. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that he leaves in us. The power is in the presence of God. With man, things are impossible. but With God, all things are possible. The Holy Spirit is that changing factor for us that takes us from living a life where we see things that we think that "Mm, I might not be able to do that to then see that, God's power can take it all that way. Arguably, walking on water was one of Jesus' most insane miracles that we ever saw because of the fact that it just defies all the laws of physics and nature and everything we see. But he did it because he had that personal and deep relationship with his father. In Matthew 4, another time where we see Jesus is out in the wilderness fasting himself for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to tempt him and he quotes God, but he twists the words to try and make jesus doubt his father jesus just turns around and he's like man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of god you shall not put your lord the lord your god to the test and then tells him to back away from me satan see he literally quotes the word of god that we see in the bible he quotes the word of his father to bring the holy spirit to empower him to drive out satan see ephesians 5 18 says continue being filled with the holy spirit Acts 2.38 says we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift brought by the forgiveness that has come for our weaknesses. Our weaknesses gives us the ability to have the Holy Spirit within us. Gives us that opportunity to pray to God that we will be filled with his strength day after day. That's why when I wake up, the first thing I like to do is I like to pray a little thing that Ramon actually um, introduced me to. It's not easy being a Christian but you woke me up for a reason. It focuses me in the morning and it shows me, you know what? God, you've got a plan for this day. You've got a plan. So fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your boldness. Fill me with you so that I will go out and I will share your love. And then we move on to verse seven. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. All of us are sinners. It's a really hard thing to hear sometimes when somebody just says, You are a person who is not great, but like all of us are unworthy of the love that Jesus has shown us. All of us are unworthy of that sacrifice that we see in the Gospels. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in by Christ Jesus. God had no debt. He had no obligation for Jesus to come and die on a cross. None of us are sinless. See, again, in Romans, I'll go back to that again. In Romans 3, verse 10, it says, it is written there was no one righteous, not even one. And then Romans 5, 8, two chapters later, it says, while we were still dead in our sins, Christ Jesus died for us. See, as soon as I was kind of thinking about this, the lyrics to Amazing Grace came into my head. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Lost but found, blind now I see. We're never going to be worthy. This is why it's so important. It's so fundamental to our faith that Paul says, if Christ Jesus did not rise from the grave, then your faith is futile. We're believing in a faith where, you know what, there's no way we can attain what we believe in. It's what sets us apart. Because I do religious studies at A-level. And the more I study Buddhism, the more you're figuring out that actually there's a there's a way to get to this point. But with us, there's nothing we can do that can make us right in the eyes of God other than accepting that Jesus died for us. And that through him. We are forgiven. See, as I said, all of us fall short. All of us have sinned, like we mentioned back in. Luke 13, a solid few weeks ago now, verse 4 says that we're all as guilty as each other. Sin is sin. It's not like there's a little sin, slightly bigger, once again, slightly bigger, and then a massive sin. There's no gray area. Like Sin is sin. You're, you're either a sinless or you're sinful. And none of us are sinless. So we're all sinful at some point. From the very start, original sin comes into the world through Adam. See, there's no scale. It's not like Jesus can die less for one person than another. All of us are being chased by God. All of us can not say that we have lived a perfect life. See, that's the scale and importance of this sacrifice. Because without it, then none of us, none of us are right with God. And it's not like we can look to the person next to us and say, you know what? I've sinned less than you. I'm gonna just skip on my prayer for this morning. Is that okay? None of us are able to do that. Because it's not as if we can be like, ah, you know what? I've been perfect for half my life. I'm only gonna worship half as hard as you. Because that's not the case. It's not like Jesus picked and choose how much he died on a cross. He died. That's like a that's a pretty substantial thing that we do. See, in everything God has simply just been searching for us his first words after adam and eve and the original sin is where are you since the start god has just been searching chasing us down trying to meet us where we are see there's no necessary requirements we have to meet up to to become a christian it's not that we say you can become a christian but you have to do dot 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 before you experience god's love you just have to choose to turn and face God. Um, It's because he's willing to chase us down no matter what. And that really resonates with me when we look at the lyrics of Reckless Love by Corey Asprey, an amazing song. Um, And it goes back to the chorus, the overwhelming never ending reckless love of God, chases me down, fights till I'm found and leaves the 99. All of us are that one. God loves us so much that we are worth chasing down for him not because we're perfect but because but because we are because we're weak because he knows that we cannot experience eternal life in heaven without being made right with him through like baptism and through turning to him and through experiencing God's love um, see Romans 8 38 and 39 some of my favorite verses in the whole of in the whole of romans but nothing can separate us from god every action is of love meet people where they're at that's what god calls us to do romans eight thirty eight to 39 i think says for nothing can separate us from the love of god neither angels nor demons the present nor the future not nothing can all create height or depth nothing in all creation we will, will be able to separate us from the lo- love that is in christ jesus our lord See, to tear down the barrier of death and to come to meet us—that's the biggest action that we see in the Bible. All of it points to it, as we say most weeks. If we go back to uh, Genesis three fifteen, that is the first time that we see that Jesus's death is predicted. Thousands of years pass. Jesus dies on the cross. Thousands of years later. It is the one point of all of humanity that if it is true what they say, changes everything. See, what's holding us back? What's holding us back from experiencing God's love? What's holding us back from turning to face him, turning to see what he has promised for us on that cross? Is forgiveness. It's not God forgiving us, but us reaching out, turning around to him recognizing that we are we are weak turning to face god feels unnatural because it's just not something that we should be able to do it's like going into a job interview with no qualifications you've done nothing that really warrants you being able to get this interview there's nothing that you could possibly say that makes you any more right for the job than anybody else but the interviewer turns to you and says here's a free qualification god's love and while you're at it take the job that feels quite unnatural and if and if that's ever happened to you in a job interview i'm very envious but like it's so unnatural because that's why it is we don't deserve god's love we don't we, there's nothing we can do that can make us any better than the person sitting next to us um I'm now going to quote one of my favourite movie characters from all time. Uh, That is not Mater from Cars. Timo Cruz from Coach Carter. An amazing film. For all the basketball lovers out there, then you'll know who I'm talking about. But his storyline is amazing. I could pick moments throughout that film to use as examples here. But here's a quote from towards the end. And throughout the film, Samuel L. Jackson, the coach, has been saying to him, What is your biggest fear? What is your biggest fear? And towards the end, Timo Cruz, the character says this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. You playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. It's not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. Since the start, it's been our sin, our weakness, our faults, our fears, our inadequacies that don't disqualify us from God's love, God's work, but qualify us for God's grace. Nothing Zacchaeus did in cheating people out of money could have changed the way Jesus loved him. Nothing can pull us away from God's love like we see in Romans 8. Nothing can change how God's love interacts with us. See, just like the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, we're not worth dying on the cross from Jesus, but he still does it anyway. Our love, our presence when we realize this liberates others. It's not being comfortable with the halfway. It's always striving for that little bit more of Jesus' presence in what we do. And we also, in this passage, see that instant snap change in Zacchaeus. This man was somebody who regularly took money from other people. And he turns around and says to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We see this change it's it's as if he's just right there and then he's recognized everything that's gone on throughout throughout his life like Zacchaeus we're not worthy of God's love but Jesus constantly goes back and shows he isn't here to save the rich they're here to save us all no matter what and this is so prominent because the first shall be last and the last shall be first and he says give up all your riches and come and follow me See, that's what we're called to do. We're called to love as Jesus has loved us. He has emboldened us with a spirit, with the spirit that he leaves on earth at the Ascension. And what Jesus does is he goes out and loves people that needed it most, reaching people where they are. He heals so many people with leprosy in the Gospels. But people with leprosy were often ignored by by society, cast out, not talked to, left to die almost. But Jesus loves them. That's the key. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, love is not self seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. See, Jesus sees us at our worst. Jesus sees us as the person that we hide away from everybody else. And he loves us all the same. That was something that was very prominent to me going through my life in, in secondary school because there, there were moments where I looked at myself and I thought, you're just, I just, I hated the look of myself because I was, I felt disgusted with who I was. And that's why Jesus' unconditional love is so astounding. God doesn't not love us at any point in our lives. He loved Zacchaeus even though he had wronged people. I'm basically stealing. He doesn't not love us when we sin. He doesn't not love Donald Trump. He doesn't not love Boris. He doesn't not love the bin man that wakes you up at half six on a Saturday morning when you just want a lion. I've tried running from my past so much. I've tried burying it so deep within me that nothing can reach it. But every day I woke up, you feel a presence sometimes. And that's just God continuing to stick by my side. And if I could go back to each of those days and if I prayed, I probably would have felt that same feeling each day. Because God was there through it all. God saw me at my worst and he stuck by me. Just like he's stuck by everybody in this room. Just like he's stuck by everybody out there in the world. See, he loved me where I was. He loved you where you were. He loved every single you that has worked from the day you were born to the day we are at now and will continue loving you billions of years into the future if you plan on living that far. See, even when I was ashamed of who I was, he loved me. Even when we feel as far from God that we could possibly be, he's still there reaching out. And all we have to do is turn around and face him and be like, God, thank you for being there for me. See, it then goes to the end of the passage where he calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. And I want to focus on this because we often see that up until the Gospels it is very much people will be called sons of Abraham. And that's because Abraham is in Jesus' bloodline. The first chapter, the first passage of the New Testament is built establishing abraham to david to the exile to jesus so the, um, there's 14 generations between abraham and david 14 between david and the exile and 14 between the exile and jesus before the cross before the action of jesus dying for our sins we were called sons of abraham but now we're sons and daughters of christ and that is adopted into his family we are loved unconditionally, we are loved no matter what we've done, there's a plan for us, there is promise of a life with him in heaven because of that action on the cross. Verse five he says Zacchaeus come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. Do you think when he said that sentence to, to Zacchaeus he saw it all playing out to saying because this man too is a son of Abraham, he's invited him into that family. Just like Joseph is adopted in um, as, the, as the father of Christ, even though he didn't have any physical I- interaction in the birth. See, what we need to do is meet people where they are. That's what God's done to us. That's what Jesus did to Zacchaeus. That's what we've seen play out these last 2,000 years. We need to stop living in a dream world where we stick within the church. Church isn't perfect. Church is the people. This, this is church. When you're eventually able to go and have coffee with your friend again, Jesus is there with you. That is the church. When you go to church, that's church. When you go to youth group, that's church. This is church. Going out and loving people, that is the action of the church. That is Acts. We're still living out Acts. The call to go out and spread Jesus' love as the church, and that's what we're doing we need to meet people where they are because the more that we stick within the church building the more that we stick in this little kind of this kind of click the less we're reaching people where they are the more that we're going to see things that aren't what we want playing out Jesus just went and chatted to Zacchaeus that's all we really see he didn't perform any healing he didn't perform any like massive miracle he just went and said Can I come over to your house for dinner? That simple action is meeting Zacchaeus where he is. And that's what we're called to do. And that is really the whole intimate story within this passage of a man who is hated by his culture because of the job he does, being met by the the son of God who loved him, who just went to spend time with him, potentially, potentially, We don't know what happens after this, but you never know. Maybe Zacchaeus became a prophet. Maybe he did great things for Jesus. But the important thing here is that Jesus met him where he was and he meets us where we are right now. No matter who we are, God is there chasing after us. So, yes, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I will now hand back over to Ben. See you in the small groups.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Josh, for that amazing spirit led, comforting and challenging talk. Amazing. But one key thing that I want to really pick up on for the next few minutes is the stark contrast, the change that happens as a result of Jesus's conversation with Zacchaeus over dinner. You see, back in those times, Zacchaeus would have been the equivalent of a millionaire just throwing some numbers around, if we just say he had a million denarii, we can see that in verse eight, he gives away half of that to the poor. So say he's given away 50,000. And then it says, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Let's say, hypothetically, he had been taking an additional 10% for every tax that he made. He'd have to give away 40% back to do 10% fourfold. That's giving away 400 thousand, leaving him with only a fraction of his original wealth. And while those are just numbers that are kind of just pulled out of the air, it's still clear to see that however much, however big the quantity actually was, the fact is that there was that change. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the rich man and Lazarus. And that's the other place where we see the phrase son of Abraham used. But you see, this is where the difference comes in. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you have a man so focused on his worldly possessions and he cannot see beyond the end of his life. You know, we're told, what good is it for us to gain the whole world but forfeit our souls? Here we see Zacchaeus taking an eternal perspective, having that shift from being self-serving, money hungry, power hungry and focused on his worldly possessions to having an eternal perspective, to living totally and utterly for Jesus, regardless of the personal financial cost that it would result in. You see, whereas in the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is kept apart. He is cast aside onto the other part of the great divide. We're ultimately told that we're all going to be separated one day. We're all going to be judged. We're all going to meet God and we'll be separated into sheep and goats some to the left and some to the right. And there will be a great divide which none can cross. You see, the things of this world are finite. And that's why Jesus is so important. That's what happens here in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. We can see that there is this shift. And Paul talks about it in Romans here, where he tells us to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This idea that the culture we're living in, we're meant to be living differently to that. We're meant to be standing out. Because, you know, Paul, again, throughout his letters, tells us that our old self has died. If we truly accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our old self has been crucified with him. There's this kind of analogy of old clothes and new clothes. We've been given a new set of clothes. We're meant to stand out. We're meant to live totally differently. And that's just the challenge that I want to leave you all with. Are you living differently? for Jesus in your everyday lives.